Did you guys hear the audio with Joe Biden talking to the uh, leader of the NAACP where he was like, nobody's done as much for black people as this white boy. Yeah, dude, that was Ooh. terrible. It was so cringy. <laughs> <laughs> what? Ooh. Yeah, it's really bad. Oh, that is a cursed take right there. I feel like I'm definitely missing Sterling. I didn't realize how much funny shit that guy interjected until he's not here. Yeah, he's pretty <laughs> solid with he that. He was always good for like a good joke. And it's funny. Like, Also, he just has like a, a very different voice than the rest of us. Like he really sticks out. It's weird not yeah, having him. I feel like he's got the most unique voice for sure. Yeah. For the part two, like I said, I'm going to do a big dive into neoliberalism and how like Reagan and Thatcher, those two characters that are predominant, you know, like the fucking alien that popped out of the chest and brought it to life in modernity. When you do your uh, like theory things, Cosper, if you could just try to use more real world examples to relate it, because I feel like you definitely explain a lot of really good concepts, but they can definitely be hard for people to relate to. And that's, you know, obviously what I've even said out loud that I was trying to do a couple of times, like give layman's examples. I'll try to absolutely start working that shit in. Hegelian dialectics are, are not easy. It's true. <laughs> I guess what I wanted to say, like, because I thought of an example of that. I, li- I like listened to it today and I was like, well, fuck, what did I mean by that? Okay. When we were talking about this like idea of Reagan being the myth for conservatives and then it's transferred into Obama and the idea of liberals saying like, no, it's changed. It's better now. Uh, Dialectically, here's the example for how that works. Take your hand up like this in front of you, Mm -hmm. close your left eye and then close your right eye. That is the perspective that changes. The root. Oh, so it's still there. The root, root of the myth remains, but the perspective of it changes. That is the dialectical explanation of like the transition behind uh, someone like Reagan to Obama in like a layman's terms. I mean, that's a great example. And it's funny because you could even explain that in audio format. And I, I imagine our listeners doing that at home, like making the black power fit <laughs> and then closing <laughs> yeah. one eye and then the other. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't mind doing that at all because I want to expand on these things a lot. I just feel like I get bogged down in like, the, OK, I need to set all this bullshit up and so on. Me and my friend, she'll listen to my ideas and be like, this is great cool, you've read a bunch of shit, but like, okay, what does this really mean? You know, (laughs) she's really good at getting me to do exactly what you're talking about. The true genius behind anybody who's explaining anything is the ability to make it relatable to anyone. To -hmm. quote Lenin. He's a good guy to quote. I have admiration for him, but I see shortcomings within Leninism being the bullshit philosophy guy that I am. Let's add Lenin to the list of topics. I wouldn't mind that at all. We got Stalin, we got Mao, we got every other like communist leader on there. We should have an episode or at least one for all of them. Stalin one's going to be lit. (laughs) Yeah, dude. I cannot wait for that shit. Oh, yeah. I will admit, I'm not in any way, shape, or form a Stalinist myself. Like, I see the good things and I like to have good critiques of Stalin, but I think there are many shortcomings that need to be mentioned in order to actualize the reality of which he was trying to bring, you know? Yeah. It's not like some bullshit fucking 60 million, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think it's just more of like for a theoretical basis, there is no foundation of what Stalinism actually is. Only time I would say Stalin did nothing wrong is to meme on somebody to like really be an edgelord if I'm talking to some right winger. Like, and I mean, there's, yeah. there's a place for that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> there's yeah, totally yeah. a place for that. There, like today, my uh, what was it? I was talking with my auntie because Biden's in Atlanta and she was like, I know you saw him like drive by and all the cops. And I was like, yeah, I did not give a fuck about that. And she was <laughs> like, come on, you got to like. All cops aren't bad people. And I was like, you almost had it right by almost saying all, <laughs> almost. all cops are bastards is the correct analogy, right? So close. Yeah. So close. You give her like a theoretical explanation of why it's not them individually, but the power structure that they all voluntarily sign up to enforce. Like, 
I yes, precisely. <laughs> because that's like the I guess the neoliberalism at which you have to play into is like okay, you know, all cops are ambassadors in themselves within the personality at which they you know have and so on. They can kind of like we were talking about with soldiers earlier mm-hmm. in the last podcast. Yeah, they unintentionally serve a power dynamic that is fundamentally rigged against certain subsects of society. And on, not only that, existing with outside of society by these ordained laws. So in a practical sense, yes, bastards. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. I mean, that's the thing that you always run into with uh, like the liberal take on all of these slogans and things like abolish the police. And it's, you know, it, they keep asking you to dilute it and dilute it, like defund the police, reform the police. And eventually it's just the police. And there is no mm-hmm. uh, word in front of it, you know. So, yeah, mm-hmm. they're, they're going to chip away at that slogan that you happen to have until it just doesn't exist anymore. This is precisely what happens typically within Sterling talked about this earlier, but the canonization of history where you have revolutionaries come about like MLK is a great example of this to where his revolutionary rhetoric and which he proclaimed is like this importance has been canonized canonized and distorted into such a way that makes it palpable to the systems at play currently and removes the teeth that could bite it. Nailed it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the liberals are already <laughs> transforming defund the police into fund the police more to give them more training as if the training is the problem and not the accountability that they don't have because you can train them all you want, not to hurt people, not to just act with impunity, but as long as they know that they can, they're just going to keep murdering people. They're going to keep harassing people like, Okay, they're going to just do whatever they want because they know they can. That's really what it comes down to. I think a great point to exactly. move to to be like, okay, what do we need to do? Is like, obviously, I think one of the first steps needs to be the abolition of qualified immunity. Yeah. I don't think that, I mean, I think that's a huge thing of, if you want to get into a nationalist argument of that is like, okay, why was America created? Because we don't think that kings should be separate from the laws at which cit- citizens obtain to and stuff. So why should any force within our governmental system or enforcement of such be viewed as that? Yeah. Yeah. And again, I'm already imagining having that argument with a postmodern conservative who just says, oh, well, maybe if those blacks weren't committing so many crimes, we wouldn't need the police to act with impunity all the time. Like, (laughs) fucking idiots. Uh, And you're not even in the shower. I know. You started that. (laughs) (laughs) Shower talks. (sighs) All right. Did you guys want to get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Are amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Leftist Podcast. I'm Mike, and tonight I'm here with Cosper, Ward, and Jaron. Uh, we don't have Sterling with us tonight. He's going to be doing some traveling for the holidays, but he will jump in with us probably next week, if not the week after. But now we are starting our first of what's going to be two episodes on Thatcher to couple with our series on Reagan. It's obviously the overarching theme is neoliberalism and how they were the probably forefront of implementing neoliberalism in the West, in the UK and America. So I guess we'll just get right into it. We have a lot of material to get to tonight. So the overall impression that we want to give our listeners about Thatcher is that she is the embodiment of neoliberalism. And just to give a brief description of neoliberalism as opposed to classical liberalism, 
Cosper is going to take a deeper dive on neoliberalism next week, but this will just be a brief kind of overview. So liberalism is a political ideology built on the foundations of liberty and equality. Classical liberalism believes in the importance of liberty, namely freedom of speech, free markets, gender equality, international cooperation, democracy, freedom of religion, and civil rights, just to name a few. During the age of the Enlightenment, 17th century philosopher John Locke argued that each individual has a natural right to life, liberty, and property, which governments must not violate. This was the time when liberalism began to grow to become a political movement on its own as it was embraced by many philosophers and economists in the West. According to the liberals, representative democracy and the rule of law should replace the absolute reign of monarchs. Neoliberalism, on the other hand, is a revival of the 19th century ideals connected to laissez-faire economic liberalism that started to grow in the 20th century. And it holds that the private sector should be given more power in the economy through policies such as privatization, deregulation, and reduced government spending in the private sector. Experts believe that the financial crisis of 2008 was a result of government adopting neoliberal policies in the 70s. Today, neoliberalism is usually associated with deregulating capital markets, removing price controls, increasing free trade, and reducing government control on the economy by implementing austerity and privatization programs. So remember that neoliberalism first gained traction in the 1960s when Latin American intellectuals were impressed by Germany's social market economy and began planning to adopt the same policies. Its most brutal implementation was probably in Chile under Pinochet with help from the Chicago Boys, students of Milton Friedman. Neoliberalism at that time was touted as a way to control social inequality and monopoly. In 1976, Argentina implemented neoliberal policies, including austerity plans and free trade. Their financial sector was deregulated, which gained the country short-term growth. And then Thatcher, Reagan, and even Bill Clinton followed suit later. So without getting too sidetracked, just talking about neoliberalism, I would say that aspects of neoliberalism that are most relevant to our listeners today would be the behaviors that we see in the Democratic Party here in the U.S. or the Labor Party in the U.K. In both, we see this symbolic support from marginalized people with very little, if anything, in the way of policy or material support to back it up. This is what we mean when we talk about empty identity politics that change nothing about the systems of oppression, things like Walmart and Amazon changing their logos during Pride Month while paying their workers unlivable wages, or Joe Biden nominating the, quote, most diverse cabinet in history that is still made up of war hawks and corporate executives. And it's the familiar meme for all of us of more black trans women drone pilots. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure we're all familiar with that. So while Thatcher was, and in some circles still is, lauded for being a strong female leader in a patriarchal world, in reality, she was nothing but devastating for the working class, women and minorities, the LGBTQ community, and marginalized people of every kind. Her being a woman merely puts a friendly face to this cruelty, which is why I can't think of a better personification of the hypocritical nature of neoliberal ideology. You know, in regards to neoliberalism taking hold in the latter half of the 20th century, this is going to be a really brief history lesson, but there was the introduction of something called Keynesian economics mm -hmm. um, in the early 20th century. And it was mostly in response to, you know, like the Great Depression and stuff like that. So the idea was one of the big staples of Keynesian economics is that higher inflation can lead to higher employment rates. And this actually did work for a while because here's what that meant is the government would be printing more money in order to put it into things that were ostensibly a good investment for them. So uh, in the 30s, that meant a lot more urban bridges across bodies of water for transit to get to work. It also meant putting money into national parks for tourism. In the 1950s, they reintroduced it. And that's how we got the interstate system. So we have all of these things that do have this kind of reward to them when the government spends. So in that respect, Keynesianism was somewhat respected. Moving past the post-war period, and especially after the destandardization of the dollar from gold, Keynesianism was used increasingly to give corporate subsidies out and not to fund these public projects that would increase tourism, increase job availability, and things like that. And therefore, we see, throwing back to our first episode on Reagan, 
what we were talking about with stagflation, where mm-hmm. interest rates are high, inflation is high, and there is no benefit to that. Mm-hmm. And then we have all of these pundits wondering, well, why isn't there anything good about this anymore? <laughs> you know, so that's kind of the real setup, I think, for Margaret Thatcher and Reagan's rhetoric is this sort of failed Keynesian myth. Yep. I think that's definitely the overarching theme that we're going for here is that some of this stuff may work even in the short term, but overall, it's just not sustainable. And it really just creates more devastation later on. And you're really just putting it off. Another short point to bring up about it is that commonly neoliberalism uses the state to take control of publicly funded instances, such as like carbon trading, which allows countries to purchase the right to pollute or corporations more specifically. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, just the idea that you're going to solve climate change with carbon tax credits by just allowing the companies to buy the right to pollute. Uh, You're not actually stopping the pollution. You're just going to make them pay more for it. And, you know, that just goes back into what we say about why the right criticizes what they consider to be the left. If you talk to anybody on the right, they will say, you know, these Democrats, they don't even believe the stuff they say. You know, they're going to just tax companies and think that that's going to solve climate change. It's like, no, you're right. That won't. They absolutely will not fix the problem. Just like putting more black female trans drone pilots will not solve the problem of brutality (laughs) in in the military. It's like when you do these symbolic things, you not only alienate the people on the right that you are disaffected, that you may be able to win over to your side if you were making some real changes, but you also still don't solve any fucking problems. So That's the thing uh-huh. is it allows us to like blame every single structural problem of our society on either personal failures or too much government. Yeah. Well, and at the end of the day, this does directly relate to Thatcher, actually. When you give a, a corporation that kind of privilege to purchase a credit to pollute more, the net sum of that pollution is socializing losses for everybody when the earth is uninhabitable. And that's just kind of the way that things work is they privatize gains, socialize losses, right? Mm-hmm. So with Thatcher in particular, one of the things that she deregulated was meat quality. She decided that we're going to start feeding cows the excess meat that humans don't eat from cows because mm-hmm. that makes sense and isn't completely disgusting. That's cannibalism. Um, <laughs> oh, man, that was a solid dad joke. I like it. <laughs> But anyway, needless to say, feeding a cow another cow has some problems. So we end up getting fucking mad cow disease, which the British government denied for, I want to say, like five or six years, Um, even though the international community knew about it. And a lot of British scientists were like, this isn't good. So the onslaught of mad cow from 1996 and onward was actually a direct result of Margaret Thatcher deregulating the meat industry and just saying, well, fuck it. Yeah, since you brought it up, I actually do have a little segment here on mad cow disease, and I might as well just jump into that. So Thatcher introduced more, quote, free market policies, which deregulated the government's control of processing animal feed, allowing mad cow disease to form and spread to humans. It's caused by a prion, and in humans, it causes Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, or CJD. So CJD, also known as subacute spongiform encephalopathy, or neurocognitive disorder due to prion disease, is a fatal degenerative brain disorder. Early symptoms include memory problems, behavioral changes, poor coordination, and visual disturbances. Later symptoms include dementia, involuntary movements, blindness, weakness, and coma. About 70% of people die within a year of diagnosis. Under pressure from supermarkets to cut costs, farmers fed their cattle, mechanically recovered bits from other cows to accelerate growth. A practice banned a year after the first mad cow disease case was diagnosed in 1987 on a Wiltshire farm. It was too late. An estimated million infected cows were already in the food chain. Prions are found in brain and spinal tissue, and these parts were also being used in pies and sausages. So yeah, I mean, that's like, I was reading about the mad cow disease incident, and... 
it was horrific. I only included that little bit because I didn't want to spend too much time on it. But there were definitely instances of, you know, mothers watching their children waste away over the course of a year and then die because they ate some infected meat. And it was all just because that's what the free market does. It takes away regulation and things that protect people from things like disease. It was really sad to, to read. Yeah. And these like, I, I know a little bit about prions, like they're extremely hard to kill. Mm-hmm. Even on surgical equipment, they like last and live through sterilization processes. They almost have to be like incinerated yeah. to be destroyed. Yeah. It's like thousands of degrees of temperature still doesn't kill these things. Yeah. They're definitely crazy for sure. That's a whole scary topic. I don't even want to think oh, about <laughs> We're depressing <laughs> enough as a podcast. <laughs> You know, that's the thing, though, and that's that's the crux of like deregulating something like that is like socially, globally, you know, civically, we all know about this thing that's dangerous. And in the act of deregulating, we're actually saying that collective knowledge doesn't account for shit. And that's, to me, just evil, honestly. Yeah. Just like with how these prions, like how we mentioned um, externalities. Exactly. In like the uh, plastic episode, like this wasn't planned. It wasn't expected, but it fucking happened and it's affecting people. Mm hmm. This is just what happens when you let these deregulations go. You can't account for every side effect or consequence that can occur that is going to damage people. It's not going to hurt these corporations or it's the people at the bottom that are going to be paying for it. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was thinking of when Jaron said earlier about socializing the losses, especially when it comes to climate change. It's like that is a huge fucking externality that is going to affect every single person on the planet. And you're just allowing these corporations to just have no accountability whatsoever for the damage they're causing. But it is going to affect everyone. I cannot think of a better example of an externality. And neoliberalism requires ignoring those to function. Like capitalism requires ignoring externalities in order to function. Okay, so I did want to get into a couple of concepts that will sort of transition us from talking about Reagan to Thatcher because they obviously have a lot in common. That's why we link them together. One of the biggest commonalities between them would be their hatred for unions and their union busting efforts that they both went through. Uh, so I'll get to a little bit about Reagan's union busting. So throughout the 1960s and 70s, farm workers in California were being organized by Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, and United Farm Workers. As governor, Reagan had the opportunity to support the farm workers on multiple occasions. Instead, he campaigned against the grape boycott, calling it immoral and attempted blackmail. And he appeared on TV eating grapes in defiance of the boycott. He also vetoed the Agricultural Labor Relations Act, which would have given farm workers the right to collectively bargain. And all of this was just the appetizer for the destruction that Reagan did once he was elected president. Perhaps his most public anti-union effort was when he fired 13,000 air traffic controllers who were on strike in the summer of 1981. So we mentioned that briefly on our first episode about Reagan, but we didn't really get into it. So I wanted to uh, talk about it a little more here. So the firings destroyed the union, PATCO, forcing the union to be decertified. Reagan also announced that the 13,000 striking members would be banned for life from working for the federal government. While some were allowed to be hired back in 1986, it wasn't until 1993 that the ban was lifted on the remaining PATCO members. In a column in the Washington Post following the firing, columnist Harold Meyerson said that this was, quote, an unambiguous signal that employers need feel little or no obligation to their workers. And employers got that message loud and clear. Illegally firing workers who sought to unionize, replacing permanent employees who could collect benefits with temps who could not, shipping factories and jobs abroad, end quote. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Does that sound like what we've been seeing our entire lives as far as the business sector is concerned? Just sounds like outsourcing to me and, you know, the entire gig economy. Certainly in relation to free trade as well. Yeah. Uh, So throughout the rest of his term, there were no more major strikes. He obviously set the precedent loud and clear. So Reagan also used his appointments to set a lasting legacy for breaking unions. He would appoint three management representatives to the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, causing it to significantly depart from its legal obligation to help promote collective bargaining. 
They settled only half the cases the NLRB did under President Jimmy Carter and found in favor of the employer in 75% of the cases. For comparison, the board under Republican President Richard Nixon only found in favor of the employer in 33% of cases. Most of the cases found in favor of employers were around firing workers who were organizing. The board would often stall cases for an average of three years, and even when they decided in favor of the employee, they would often only award back wages. Now, 30-plus years later, that standard is often used in NLRB cases. So that is a perfect example of what we're talking about when we say that Reagan is responsible for the kind of behavior that we're seeing from the government now and how it just always sides with businesses and the working class is just still getting screwed from stuff that Reagan did 40 years ago. Even under Republican presidents before, like Nixon, they would side with the employer in 33% of cases, but then under under Reagan, it was 75%. So obviously, Lord. they made it very clear that the NLRB was no longer an organization that actually did its job and represented workers. So the situation at the Department of Labor wasn't much better. While the DOL continued to strictly enforce disclosure rules for unions, they cast a blind eye to high-priced union busting and consulting firms that began popping up. With no oversight, these high-priced firms took action to squash organizing drives by dumping millions of dollars of dark money into these firms. At the same time, Reagan made it less safe to be a worker. He closed a third of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration offices and decreased the staff by 25% and eliminated 75% of the penalties against employers. Instead of tough penalties against bad employers, OSHA began seeking voluntary compliance. Under the guise of reducing federal regulation, the Reagan administration forced OSHA to drop rules that required companies to pull their information about hazardous materials that might be used on a job site, meaning that a laborer might not know that a painter is using a chemical that could be dangerous without the proper safety gear. His administration routinely used this excuse to block numerous OSHA regulations over his eight years in office. Reagan's presidency marked the end of a bipartisan union movement and moved the Republican Party far closer to big business. It also established a number of anti-union precedents within federal agencies that have taken decades to fix. Over the eight years Reagan was in office, union membership dropped from about 20% just 16%. Since then, union membership has continued to decrease, with it now being about half of what it was during Reagan's presidency. When looking at the union's history in the United States, there's a clear delineation between before Reagan and after Reagan. Yeah, isn't it like current union rates are like 7%, something like that? Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. I don't actually know off the top of my head, but I know it is a pitifully low number. And that's, you know, why you see things like Uber and all these like app companies that now basically exist just to skirt labor regulations. Like that is literally what they do. I mean, if anybody, people who are listening to us are also just into podcasts generally, but I always recommend the Trash Future podcast because they talk about this in several different episodes. What are so-called tech companies, I think Uber is technically considered a tech company. And there's a couple others that they give examples of, but basically they only exist to get around regulations in a current industry. So like Uber exists just to have cabs that aren't beholden to any of the regulations of what would be required if you were a traditional cab company. And they are, quote, tech companies because they use apps, because they use technology. And that allows them to take advantage of tax loopholes and subsidies that are given to tech companies that are there to ostensibly spur development. But really, they are just using the tech as a cover to avoid regulation. Yeah, the same could be said for Airbnb. I mean, before COVID, people were buying up properties in prominent areas left and right, especially areas that were up and coming, even if, uh, you know, the gentrification in that area had just begun. I saw it in Atlanta, even when I was living there. And then, uh, you know, COVID hits and all of these people don't have renters anymore and they have like six or seven different loans going for those properties. And it's really yeah. tough to feel bad for them. No, not. A, I remember seeing a video when that, the pandemic was first getting started and there was some guy who was like an Airbnb landlord and he was doing this a lot. Exactly what you said. He had tons of places and he recorded some like really creepy video where it was like a real close up of his face. And he was very angry at Airbnb for, for taking the side of the renters as opposed to the landlords of these properties. And he was totally screwed 
screwed, but he was doing something that even the Airbnb business model was not meant to be done with, but he was definitely making money hand over fist doing it. And then overnight, he was totally screwed. He was definitely making the rounds and lefty spaces and we were getting a good laugh out of that shit. I also think this is probably old news to a lot of listeners on here, but you know, the thing about unions that is incredibly valuable, just for instance, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I can't seem to remember what year this occurred, but a socialist protest that was due largely in part to union organization is kind of why the national precedent exists that we don't get our water from the same aquifer that we shit in. <laughs> um, so there, there are definitely some really good things about unions. It's why we don't have, I forget what the libertarian meme is. Libertarian utopia is like a 10 year old smoking a cigar in a cold mine, um, <laughs> trying to buy heroin with Bitcoin or something like that. Yep. <laughs> you know, a lot of, a lot of workers efforts are aimed at the needs of the people generally. So we do have to keep that in mind is if the person in charge of the company is making all of these statutes, their priority is their bottom line. If we're talking about the workers, they're the that live in average houses and have to deal with everyday problems like we do. So that generally they're going to act in a manner that is to our benefit. Yeah, don't worry, Jaron. The invisible hand will take care of all of that. It'll be fine. <laughs> right. Just like God. Yep. Yeah. I feel like in terms <laughs> with neoliberalism and like how we're talking about Uber right now, we got vice president-elect Kamala Harris, whose brother-in-law works for Uber, who is leading the charge like for Prop 22 and like mm -hmm. her sister works for Uber as like the chief of diversity or something. It just shows how these systems are intertwined and how it goes hand in hand. It's that revolving door. It's funny, I did see a video from the Libertarian Party conference of some kind. And as much as you say it's a meme, like it really happened. This guy was, he was on the stage saying like, you know, we should have some regulation. I don't think we should have five-year-olds able to buy heroin. And he literally got booed when he said it. But the crowd booed him for saying that. <laughs> did, you, uh, did you see the one of Gary Johnson in it about the driver's license? Yeah, that's actually the same yeah. video. Yeah, it was that same <laughs> conference. <laughs> I forget, what did he say about driver's licenses? Do you remember? Uh, they were asking him, was like, do you think that someone should have to have a driver's license to drive a car? And one of the guys was like, what's next? Registration for my toaster? To <laughs> what, <laughs> I'm going to register my toaster? <laughs> Gary Johnson oh was God. like, yeah, I think you should display some level of competence to drive a vehicle that could kill people. And everybody's like, <gasps> get out of here, you fool. Uh, one thing I had always seen be passed around like leftist circles is this graph by the EPI, which is Economic Policy Institute, that shows the disconnection between productivity and worker compensation throughout the years. Do you see destandardization from gold from a tangible, internationally recognized form of value as something that may have contributed to that? I think so, absolutely, because it made us into a fiat currency. It really hurts the way that which you value things in general. And you lose a sense of what is value in itself, which we know these things are innately made up and so on and so on. But the further you get and the more abstracted the money becomes, the harder it becomes to distribute it in a quote unquote equal basis. You know, the timeframes sync up so well with this stuff that mm -hmm. it is very telling to see that stagflation and the blaming of workers unions took place after destandardization, because I think on the whole, a lot of people didn't really understand what was happening to their dollar, to their purchasing power and things like that. And I think that the, the hammer coming down on unions was sort of a scapegoat to those things that Thatcher in particular really took advantage of. Completely agree. When the common ideology becomes, you know, what is this value based on in the first place, and you see it shrinking, precisely what you're saying, there needs to be someone to blame it on. And in this case, in Thatcher and in Reagan, it became the union, sadly. Yep. 
that's created this graph's possibility to see the productivity continuously going up and the hourly compensation of which going down. Yeah, it's just plateaued. I was talking about that with some people online last night and people asked me for a source on that chart exactly. And if you just Google that wages versus productivity, about 12 different websites come up and they all have that exact same graph. And it is clear as day from the 70s onward for the last 50 years, wages plateauing while productivity continues to rise. And that's because of the lack of unions. It's because of privatization, deregulation, all the things that we've been talking about. And this creates that commonplace thought of like, you know, I'm 22. At my age, my parents would have been able to got into a house, been able to take care of themselves in such a way. And it is just not the same at all today in the way that we experience wealth and stuff of that nature. Yeah. Uh, So to bring it back to Thatcher, when Thatcher took office as Britain's first female prime minister in May of 1979, her country was in a recession. Her idea to solve this was to privatize state-owned industries such as steel and coal that relied heavily on government subsidies, as well as curbing the power of Britain's trade unions. Her goal when she took office, she later said, was to turn Britain from a, quote, dependent to a self-reliant society, from a give it to me to a do-it-yourself nation. You know, obviously that's incredibly simplistic and it sounds good rhetorically, like everything that the right wing does, it's a good talking point and it sounds good if you're like a simple-minded person and you have this very small mindset that you understand the entire world through. But obviously it doesn't really take into account a lot of the nuance and the complexity of a situation like an entire country's economy. So on the other side of the looming battle over coal was Arthur Scargill who became president of the National Union of Mine Workers, NUM, in 1981. As leader of the Yorkshire Miners during the national strike in 1974, he helped pioneer more radical labor organization tactics, such as sending picketers to specific plants to halt transportation of coal. That made that strike such a success. On March 6, 1984, the National Coal Board announced its plan to cut the nation's coal output, which would mean the closure of 20 coal pits, as they were called. That's what they called like a coal plant. And the loss of some 20,000 jobs. The same day the plan was announced, Miners at a coal pit in South Yorkshire walked out on the job. Scargill used this as an opportunity to call a nationwide strike against the planned pit closures. Controversially, he never held a national vote within the NUM, and not all miners were on board with the walkout. In some parts of the country, miners kept working, causing tensions with the picketing workers who branded them as scabs. Using Scargill's aggressive picketing tactics, the striking miners managed to shut down many pits across Britain. But unlike in the 1970s, Thatcher had taken steps to stockpile enough coal to keep the country's supply for at least six months in case of a strike. She also had made secret deals with non-unionized drivers to transport the coal, ensuring that power outages would not cripple the country as during previous strikes. The striking miners faced off against police forces backed by Thatcher's government in clashes that often turned violent. Documents declassified in 2014 revealed that Thatcher considered calling out the military to transport food and coal and even declaring a state of emergency in order to strengthen her government's position. So she's like willing to do all this like cover up stuff to show to the public like, hey, things were working fine while she's just crushing these unions. Absolutely, dude. Like, yeah, I mean, fascist shit right there. Dude, it's devious. I mean, I got to admit, it's actually pretty smart. Like if you know that you're going to do some shit that's going to piss off a lot of workers and they're probably going to go on strike to make all these backdoor deals like that and stockpile the coal so that you know that people will still have it like they're depending on that for their energy. And you know that you're going to be able to supply that for six months. That's a good enough amount of time to get people to stop caring about the striking workers. You know, I mean, we see how the media works even today. I'm sure it was very similar back then where if you just can push a problem out of the public view and out of the headlines for a little little bit, people forget about it. And that seems like that was her idea was to make sure that people were not affected by it on a daily basis. And then they weren't going to side with these workers. Okay. So going back to the violence of the minor strike, some of the worst violence occurred in South Yorkshire, including a standoff at the British steel plant in Orgreave on June 18th, 1984, involving 10,000 miners and 5,000 police officers. When the smoke cleared, 51 miners and 72 police officers had been injured in what became known as the Battle of Orgreave. So dozens of miners were arrested, but the government's prosecution of them fell apart after it emerged that the police had fabricated evidence, among other wrongdoings. 
as the strike dragged on, Thatcher's government held firm. Working miners in Nottinghamshire and South Leicester started a rival union, the Democratic Union of Mine Workers, and many miners across the country gradually started returning to work. On March 3, 1985, Scargill and the NUM voted to end the strike after 362 days. Brass bands, parades, and colorful flags accompanied many of the miners back to work as they put a brave face on defeat. There was no settlement, and Thatcher's government hadn't made a single concession. The prime minister's tough stance helped build her enduring reputation as the, quote, Iron Lady, a nickname given to her by the Soviet press in the 1970s. She would lead the Conservative Party to three straight election wins and would hold office for 11 years, longer than any other British politician of the 20th century. The failure of the 1984-85 minor strike helped revive the British economy, but had major implications for the future of labor unions and coal mining in Britain. Union membership fell from some 40% of the nation's workforce to barely 20% and dropped even lower during the decades to come. By 1994, when the coal mining industry was finally privatized, Britain had just 15 coal pits. When Thatcher died in 2013, only three remained. The miners' strike and the devastating impact of coal's demise would leave lasting scars on many of Britain's former mining communities, as well as lingering resentment toward the government and police force that would endure well into the next century. So this is pretty much exactly the same tale as we had with Reagan. You just make it very clear that you are not going to tolerate any strikes. You're not going to give any concessions. You are going to do every kind of backdoor deal you possibly can to just remove the power that these unions have to represent workers. And it affects things for decades and decades after. And we're still now living in the ruins of that. I guess that's probably our biggest thing that we want to make clear to everyone is like, this is the legacy that these people have left behind. And that's why you're dealing with the things that you're dealing with today. Yeah, this is definitely not some like history only subjects. Like these are still issues that are affecting everybody today. I think there's also, first off, the the rhetoric of this whole unified England thing is <laughs> a bit of an oxymoron because, mm-hmm. you know, first off, England, the UK consists of four different countries that England has systemically subjugated repeatedly until yeah. they basically couldn't deal with it anymore. But even aside from that, Thatcher being very religious and Reagan being very religious There's certainly a tie to be made there, especially given Thatcher's role, you know, in dealing with the House of Lords and, of course, the Queen herself and just her general disposition towards, like, gay rights, which she was very repressive against. I'm trying to remember what the denomination of hers was. It's Episcopalian here, but the Church of England is actually kind of where she reigned from. So she's already, you know, kind of in the Queen's back pocket here. But if we happen to get into her religious component. I would love to talk about that and just its overall effect on not just England, but the Western world as a whole. Yeah, I don't have anything about her and religion, but that's actually a good point to bring up. And I definitely can get some stuff on that and we can have that ready for the next episode. Hell yeah. But I do have stuff on her anti-LGBT measures, which is actually the other thing I wanted to tie with her and Reagan. Um, So obviously in America, Reagan was around during the beginning of the AIDS crisis. Like when AIDS first came on the scene, Reagan was president. And it's funny, you can draw a very good parallel to Trump's reaction or non-reaction to COVID, this denial and pretending that it's just some kind of non-issue when it obviously is a very big problem. Okay, so we'll talk about Section 28. So this was an anti-LGBTQ policy. So from an article in The Independent, part of the Local Government Act of 1988, Section 28 banned the, quote, promotion of homosexuality by local authorities and in Britain's schools. A successor to the Local Government Act 1986 bill introduced by the Earl of Halsbury that had pushed the same agenda, the clause meant in practice that teachers were prohibited from discussing even the possibility of same-sex relationships with students. Councils were meanwhile forbidden from stocking libraries with literature or films that contained gay or lesbian themes, forcing young people to look elsewhere for educational material. Finding solace in novels like Jeanette Winterson's Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit that came out in 1985, and the positive examples 
set by the era's, quote, out or androgynous pop stars. Obviously, I'm thinking of Bowie. For thinking Same, of yeah. Oh, I wanted to also note councils are what they call public housing in England. I, I had to look that up myself. I wasn't sure what that meant exactly. So Thatcher's law was met with uproar from LGBT activists. Three lesbian protesters repelled from the public gallery of the House of Lords to the chamber before being hustled away by attendants, a spectacular sight that made national news and helped draw attention to their cause. I want to make that clear. Like they actually repelled down with ropes on the front of this building into whatever chamber they got to before the security guards like, you know, shuffled them away really quick. That's amazing. I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty badass. Like, <laughs> we need more of that shit over here. Yeah, dude. Like, that's great. <laughs> Activists also stormed the BBC on the 23rd of May in 1988, handcuffing themselves to a TV camera and disrupting a broadcast of the 6 o'clock news presented by Sue Lawley and Nicholas Witchell. In Manchester, more than 20,000 people marched against Section 28, while the actor Ian McKellen came out publicly for the first time in order to voice his opposition. Thatcher, responsible for the first new homophobic law to be introduced in a century, had voiced her opposition to gay rights at the 1987 Conservative Party conference in Blackpool. She said, quote, children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. Imagine saying that like it's a bad thing. Jesus Christ, it's just so much suppression of people's natural identity and who they are as a person. How dare we, you know, teach these kids that they have a, a right to be gay, like. Yeah, I mean, again, it, it really harkens to this religiously fundamental aspect of these two people in particular. I forget who said it in a, in a previous episode that, you know, conservatism is like fascism light where you're, you're looking back 30 years instead of it, an entire national history. But it's true. You know, we're looking at people who are obsessed with the nuclear family. They're obsessed with gender roles. They're obsessed with all of this shit that was supposedly great in the 50s or whatever. But I mean, you know, at the same time, uh, I was reading something today that fat actually spent while she's complaining about welfare and unions, she's spending government money to run news slander against the Soviet Union to paint them as being poor and homosexual and all these other things that are, mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote desirable. But I think it's interesting that she will couple or not her specifically, but her campaign will couple things like they're impoverished and gay. <laughs> do you, do you see what I mean? <laughs> Well, th that's just it, is there is no connection, but subliminally we're saying like, okay, well, both of these things are bad, right? We're going to say yeah. that they're poor and gay. <laughs> so therefore, if you're having homosexual feelings, you're a Soviet and you're going to be poor or some shit like that. They, they use two things that don't normally fit together to try and give license to both of them at the same time under the same blanket. Yeah, that's nefarious. Yeah, that's the the poor and gay is the uh, the UK version of what was happening in America about the myth of the lonely, isolated gay man. They push this propaganda yep. and this narrative that these are who these people are. And people who identify as that start to adopt that into who they think they are with that identity. You know, they start to think that, oh, maybe I am a lonely gay man. I remember there was a book written by a gay man in the 80s or 90s coming up in New York who was like struggling with his sexual identity. And, you know, he bought into the rhetoric of the lonely, isolated gay man. But that quickly shattered when um, he went to a truck stop where there's a bunch of gay men getting together. And when the police showed up, there's hundreds of men just scrambling out from behind these trucks running into the bushes. And the newspaper the next day was like, oh, a couple guys. Yeah, that was it. 
It's like, no, this is a much bigger widespread thing that people are a part of. You know, it's not just a few isolated people here and there. It limits the societal progress for these groups, pushing these rhetorics onto them. And especially like with the Section 28, not even allowing the education of it. Like, how can you even start to begin to discuss these topics if you're not allowed to discuss them in school? There's no education around them and you can't even get the right terminology and explanations out. With that same book, he identified as a homosexual, which at the time was categorized as like a mental disorder. Yeah. They can't progress without even the language or the discussions taking place. So this is just an open question to everybody, because it's something that I think about. You know, when we do see these right-wing ideologies that suppress things like sexuality or your rights based upon your skin color or religion or whatever, I oftentimes wonder whether or not these things are intentionally meant to create identity politics and therefore split class politics into very small segments based upon identity. Not that those things are not important. They absolutely are. But, you know, sometimes I do find myself wondering how much of this is intentional, how much of like Thatcher's policy against gays was religious, and how much was it to create a narrative about homosexuality that's going to preoccupy the minds of the average British civilian during that time and keep their eyes away from things like, oh, I don't know, the coal strikes, you know, things like that. No, that's a really good point. Yeah, I've heard people say that same kind of thing a lot about Trump, basically that everything he did in his campaign right up to his entire term in office was to focus on emotionally charged culture issues, because then you could do whatever you wanted to do policy wise, completely out of the view of the public. You know, we know that he did a ton of really awful shit policy wise, like the way that he cut the IRS to such a skeleton crew that now rich people get away with even more tax fraud than they already were getting away with. And just people don't get audited anymore. Not to mention like selling off public land, all the things that he did while he was in office that just really made no headlines whatsoever because everybody was talking about whatever he tweeted that week. It was again, kind of a diabolical thing to do. And it makes you wonder if he really is playing that kind of 4D chess where he occupies the press and everyone's minds with one thing. And then he does some really shady shit out of sight, out of mind. The thing that you uh, you seem to forget here is that Trump's been being audited by the IRS for the past 15 years. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, any day they're going to arrest him, I promise. They're definitely going to do it. Just while we were on the topic of this, you brought up how Reagan handled AIDS and stuff like that. There was a lot of criticism bound the Reagan administration. And I don't know if y'all remember exactly what the first name for AIDS was. No. It was called GRID. It was called Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. Oh, yeah. God I remember that now. Because the first five subjects that like they did test studies on were all homosexual, and that was their main focus point, and they ran off that narrative. Right. And it, there's a lot of history behind how AIDS was handled. And if I'm sorry, if I known we were going in on that, I would have done a lot. Well, I do have a section on Reagan's handling of AIDS as well. I just kind of started with Thatcher. But uh, yeah, we'll talk about that in just a minute. I did want to say like a point of discussion that I continually have with people from the right or even like people who are good naturedly asking questions of things that they don't know about. Like people ask about like trans issues or just any LGBT issue. And they will ask just out of ignorance if it is the case that these things are being forced on us in some way or if there are somehow more trans or gay people than there used to be. The obvious answer is that no, they were always there. They just now finally feel comfortable to present themselves because we've gotten to a point largely thanks to the Internet and having these kind of conversations where these people now feel like they can actually come out without being murdered for it. And even in some cases, they still can't. Like it happens all the time. There's tons of violence against LGBT people. 
But at least more than before, they are able to now present themselves and come to the light, which is great. I mean, that should just continue to happen more. And that's what you're seeing when the science evolves and says that gender is a social construct. And when people who are stupidly saying like, oh, read a biology textbook if you think that, you know, trans people are not mentally ill. And it's like, no, that's what biology says. Biology says they are not mentally ill. It is not a mental illness. They are just identifying as a different gender than what you may think you know, that you don't have a say in somebody's gender. Like, I know that's really uncomfortable for some people, but like, yeah, go ahead, Cosper. All I had to say was like, this appeal to biology is always so infantile to me because the immediate question is point me to a biologist that studies gender, please. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. But the biology books these guys are referencing are the ones that they went and had in high school. Yeah. You know, the outdated bullshit that they memorized or barely even slept through, you know, they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They just think it's a catchy thing to just shut up the libs. Yeah. Probably also books that exclude evolution as a process in scientific developments as well. Yeah. You know, you can just Google uh, Thatcher Bible and here's the first thing that comes up. Margaret Thatcher, we are told in the Bible, we must work and use our talents to create wealth, 1988. So, I mean, she's already quoting, you know, a book that is famous for ostracizing people in front of an entire national committee for everyone to watch on TV. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, It's deemed acceptable. It's deemed normative. And the lasting impression of that, even post Thatcherism, you know, people tend to live a pretty long time now. That has a lasting impression on the psychology of people. And not just in that country, but like Bill Clinton is the one that signed DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, into effect. You can't tell me that didn't have something to do with Thatcher and Reagan. He's the one that said that gays couldn't get married. And that just got overturned, if memory serves, in 2013. Yeah. Which is absolutely, when you think about it, that is completely insane. Yeah. I like how that's the Bible coach that she took instead of like, you know, the it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. <laughs> they always forget that one. <laughs> I also was going to say, like, you can easily Google and find that there are pictures of trans people protesting for their rights as early as the 1920s or even earlier than that. It's not that they weren't there. They were always there. They just weren't able to come out. They weren't able to be public about who they were. They had to live in the shadows. And it's terrible to think about, but like it really is sad. So many people had to live just hiding their identity, hiding their true nature. And especially knowing like when we were talking about the Thanksgiving episodes and we were talking about indigenous cultures and how they had recognized for centuries before people who had what they called two spirits. Like they recognize trans people and totally consider them valid. That just makes it so much more depressing to think that what people in the West consider progress is actually such a huge step backwards in so many ways. Yeah. Wasn't uh, like the women's rights movement started by trans women? That's something I think I read somewhere. Not exactly sure. But uh, yeah, just like how you're saying that these people have been around forever. It's just like how we move forward with education in these discussions. We create a language to describe it. They just didn't have the language accessible to them at the time to fully have these discussions on what their identity was and the circumstances around it. So now it's like you were saying, oh, are they just now just happening out of nowhere? It's like, no, they've been here around, but They just wouldn't know because these discussions weren't being had. The language and the terms weren't accessible. You know, they didn't exist at the time. Yeah, it's so weird how when you have a society that demonizes people for who they are, they kind of clam up about it for decades until they become acceptable in the common parlance. And then you hear about it all of a sudden. I think the most hilarious part about that is this demonization of the expression of oneself. Also, one of the main proponents of our society and culture is this emphasis on being yourself. Mm -hmm. I just love that contradiction innately within the ideal. 
No, be yourself, but within a very small frame of what is considered acceptable. And especially if it can be exploited for profit, then it's totally precisely, cool. precisely. And also, th- I think that's another thing of oh, actually, I'll save that later. If we ever do an episode on gender or anything of that nature, I would Dude, love add to, it to the list, on. man. Yeah, we're going to have like 30 topics before the end of the night. <laughs> All right, so I do want to go back to that quote. I actually didn't finish that quote from Margaret Thatcher. So she said, quote, children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated out of a sound start in life. Yes, cheated. She had to reiterate it. She had to reiterate that these kids are somehow being cheated just by being taught that it's okay to be LGBT. I just love how the majority of all of these Thatcher and Reagan quotes that we're reading have just aged like milk over the centuries. Just oh, dude, they're terrible. <laughs> when we get to... Uh, We'll get to the Hillsborough incident and we'll talk about just how cold this woman was. It's fucking awful, man. I just looked it up and it, um, it wasn't the women's rights. It was uh, gay rights with the uh, Stonewall riots in New York. Right. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. led by trans women. Yes. Specifically, right. majoritively trans women of color. Yes. I got an idea for another episode, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so she was emboldened to express her prejudice by a rise in homophobia exacerbated by the AIDS and HIV crisis and its hostile coverage in the right wing tabloid press. The Tories capitalized on the sentiment in that same year's election campaign, suggesting that Labor was intent on seeing pro-LGBT books taught in school, a powerful piece of rhetoric at a time when 75% of the population believed homosexuality was, quote, always or mostly wrong, according to a contemporary British social attitude survey. So, I mean, that's tit for tat. We have what, you know, she's doing is very linked to what Reagan is doing over in the U.S. with his intentional botching, it seems, of the AIDS crisis. Um, So actually to get into Ronald Reagan and the AIDS crisis. So... I'll talk a little bit about him. First reported in the medical and mainstream press in 1981, it was not until October 1987 that Reagan publicly spoke about the AIDS epidemic in major policy address. By the end of that year, 59,000 AIDS cases had been reported and 28,000 of those women and men had died. He and his administration did almost nothing during the first seven years of the epidemic. AIDS research was chronically underfunded. Community education and prevention programs were routinely denied in federal funding. Reagan, a man affectionately dubbed the great communicator by his supporters, was excruciatingly, unjustifiably silent about HIV and AIDS. Defenders of the Reagan legacy like to argue that his domestic policy advisors downplayed AIDS to such a degree that the former president never developed a sense of urgency. To accept this, you would have to also believe that Reagan never watched television or picked up a newspaper. The media, both print and television, including the first 24-hour news network, CNN, were all over AIDS in the 1980s. Histrionic televangelists like Pat Robertson and Reverend Jerry Falwell seized any opportunity to articulate and promote the idea that AIDS was God's wrath upon homosexuals. Even as the highly publicized illness and subsequent death in 1985 of Rock Hudson made headlines and sent a shiver down Hollywood's spine, Reagan remained inexplicably quiet. His friend and colleague, beloved actor and White House state dinner guest, was dead from AIDS. No public comment. What was that about? Indifference? Had he chosen to speak up after Hudson's death, the world would have listened. Ronald Reagan, the man who confidently parlayed Hollywood stardom into a successful political career, did not have had a more compelling opportunity to open his mouth. It's very obvious. I mean, it just ties right into the religious fervor, having this kind of dogmatic fundamentalism, and what obviously is an anti-LGBT agenda to just allow these people to die of this disease that you can prevent if you just take the proper measures. And yeah, we're seeing that same kind of link between what he was doing over here in the U.S. and what Thatcher was doing in the U.K. Yeah, they just don't address it because it keeps it out of the what is mainstream society. And it helps them reinforce that rhetoric that Thatcher was pushing, that they're poor and gay, and that America was pushing at the time that they're lonely, isolated gay men, you know? Mm-hmm. It just helps enforce that it, as long as you keep any pro-LGBT discussion 
out of the mainstream narrative. I think also tying Reagan and Thatcher together, this has nothing to do with identity politics, but one thing that they were very uh, synchronized on too was banking deregulation, which Mike touched on a little bit before. But just to dig in a little bit deeper, you know, we're talking about serious changes in uh, loan to holdings ratios. We're talking about serious changes in what is and is not allowed to be sold as a derivative asset, specifically debt being sold as a derivative asset. And as a result of that, we do see things like 2008, where they're giving out as many loans as possible because that loan in and of itself, even though it's a negative amount of money, can be repackaged and sold to a separate investor that you're supposed to get interest from at some point in time, I guess, when the person that can't pay off the loan to begin with magically gets interest to pay you back. Um, And then at the same time, the bank is allowed to lend out for every dollar, they're allowed to lend out 90 cents. So every time you put a dollar in the bank, there's actually only 10 cents there. Now, if any of that doesn't make sense to you, that's the fucking point. (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't make sense. And that's that's the banking deregulation that we saw in the US under Reagan and consequently in the UK under Thatcher and continuing on from their contemporaries from that point is precisely what leads us to these boom bust cycles. The only thing that ties all of this together is that banking officials, they still get to keep their commissions. Banking subsidies, they still get to keep their subsidies. So again, it is privatizing gains, socializing losses with a plan that is doomed to implode every eight to 10 years. Yeah, you should have seen my face when I was probably about Cosper's age and I was like a young cringy libertarian and I found out about the concept of fractional reserve banking. The idea is basically that they are creating money out of thin air. They are right. you know, using what they have in the bank on paper to then loan out more than what they actually have just based on the idea that people are not all going to come and cash out their money all at once. You know, they know right. that they don't actually They're- have actually have to have all of that on hand at any given time. That's why a run on the bank would be so disastrous for the country. Right. And they're they're hedging on that bet that there won't be a run on the bank. And at the same time, you know, I have to think the emboldenment and expansion of the police state is happening at the same time as regulations such as these, because eventually if that run on the bank happens, what do you think is going to be the bastion between the Mm -hmm. bank and the aristocracy and the people who want their fucking money? You know, they're they're setting things up in a way that continues this proliferation of oppression. It is no coincidence that banking deregulation, boom bust, and all of these things we've seen in the past 40 years since these two assholes were in charge of the Western world accompanied the fact that the police are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Because guess what? Look at Occupy Wall Street. How did that go? There were some good things about it for sure, but they tanked it. They pushed it down. They had undercover officers whooping people's asses. I mean, they not only did they infiltrate it, but they pushed it down from the top as well. They were fully prepared for Occupy Wall Street because of Reagan and Thatcher. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so then I do have a couple shorter passages about Thatcher. I want to talk about real quick the milk subsidy. So in the aftermath of World War II, the labor government had a minor crisis on its hands. Huge swaths of the British population were growing up undernourished, a fact that ongoing rationing really wasn't helping. So they came up with a simple solution. From then on, every school-aged child would receive a free glass of milk every weekday. It was a cheap, popular policy. So popular, in fact, that when Margaret Thatcher canceled it in 1971, it caused an outcry. 1971 was a year of Ted Heath's conservative government, which was trying to make huge savings to the budget. At the time, Thatcher was the education secretary, her first major political role. Trying to trim back spending in her department, She ended the milk subsidies for all children over the age of seven. It made minor savings at best, 
and was, as the labor education spokesman said, quote, the meanest and most unworthy thing the country had seen in decades. Ending the subsidy was so unpopular that people would shout Thatcher milk snatcher when they saw her in the streets. Along with other cuts to the education budget, it so angered the sector that Oxford University refused to give the then prime minister an honorary degree in 1985. Dude, people are still mad about that. Like, yeah, you can find like <laughs> older like people in the UK. They're still mad about that. Mm hmm. I had heard the Thatcher Milk Snatcher thing before, but I didn't know why. And that explained it. It's like, it's just so cruel and callous, man. But it's, again, it's, it's completely relatable to right now. The school nutrition organization in the United States has found that I'm looking at it right here. uh, Three quarters of public school districts held unpaid meal debt at the end of 2017 here in the United States. Yeah. Kids have meal debt at public school here in the U.S. Yeah. Completely tangible connection there. But look at the bright side, Jaron. Then you get these uplifting articles where some athlete pays off like $35,000 of student meal debt and it's seen as a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, not only that, but the rest of the kids that don't get that, they're going to be lean, dude. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the whole like milk thing and like how people are still fucking mad about that is uh, really similar to here in the US. If you like go to any VFW like and talk to like the veterans about the Red Cross mm-hmm. and just mention donuts. Dude, they're fucking mad. Wait, fill us in. I don't know anything about this. The Red Cross, for the longest time, used to give veterans free donuts and coffee for, oh, God, like, I want to say, like, 50 years, 60 years, something like that. Like, yeah. that was, like, their whole thing. And then they decided, you know, like, oh, it's not, it's not good in our budget. You know, <laughs> it's not on our budget interest to give out these free donuts and coffee. Uh. And so they started charging for it. There's like, you go find an old ass veteran today at a VFW, he will go off into a fucking tangent <laughs> about these fucking free donuts. Oh, dude. Yeah, I mean, that just makes me think of, it seems like it's common knowledge that once people have a program, even if it's as simple as a glass of milk or a coffee and a donut, once you take that away, people get incensed, dude. And I think that's why we see such huge backlash against even the idea of Medicare for all. Because people know that if, like, imagine if you gave people Medicare for all and then took it away. Imagine how pissed they would be, you know, if they're that pissed about a glass of milk or a donut. Just imagine, like, losing their health care. And that's why I'm so surprised to see people in the UK, like, voluntarily, sort of, because I feel like they don't realize how bad it will be if they lose the, um, what is it, the NHS? Yes. Yeah. When they elected Which Boris Thatcher Johnson, did like... try to privatize. Of course. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely a popular thing that I saw online, too. Like, videos of people from America interviewing people in the UK and asking them really simple questions about what they think an operation costs in America. Like, what they think it costs to have a baby. What they think an ambulance ride costs. And it was just adorable. It was like when you see billionaires trying to talk about how much they think a loaf of bread costs. It was... It was hilarious, but also tragic at the same time. Like, they really don't know what they're in for if they lose the NHS, man. Yeah, in prep for this, uh, I was watching, like, some YouTube videos of, like, people gathering uh, for protests around Thatcher's funeral. And this one guy was like, I've been wishing for her death since I was five, since when she took my milk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, dude. (laughs) (laughs) That is a grudge. I love it. Did you think she did any good? Not a bit of good. Not a bit. I put a steak through her heart and garlic around her neck to make sure she never come back. Isn't that a pretty horrible thing to say when her funeral's going on right now? Too bad, too bad. All right, so another example of just how much of a cold witch this woman was. So I found out about the Hillsborough disaster. I had never heard about this until the last couple of days. So the Hillsborough disaster was a fatal human crush incident during a soccer match at the Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, England on April 15th, 1989. It occurred during an FA Cup semi-final between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest 
I, I'm just happy that that's a real place, Nottingham Forest. Like, it's not just in Robin Hood. Like, it's a real place. <laughs> <laughs> so during an FA Cup semifinal between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest and the two standing-only central pens in the Leppings Lane stand allocated to Liverpool supporters, shortly before kickoff, in an attempt to ease overcrowding outside the entrance turnstiles, the police match commander, David Duckenfield, ordered exit gate C opened, leading to an influx of even more supporters to the pens. This led to a crowding in the pens and the crush. With 96 fatalities and 766 injuries, it is the worst disaster in British sporting history. Basically, it's just that the police fucked up. Like, they did something stupid that caused all these people to just flood into this area to the point where people got trampled and stampeded and 96 people died. Jesus Christ. I, and like, I can't even imagine that shit. Like, well, we have Black Friday, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. So then... Where it really gets bad is like her reaction to this when she was actually confronted. So quoting an article in the Liverpool Echo about the incident, just weeks after she lost her 18-year-old son James at Hillsborough, Margaret Aspinall, chair of the Hillsborough Family Support Group, met then Prime Minister Thatcher at Liverpool Cathedral. Aspinall told the Echo, she, meaning Thatcher, said there were 750 police officers on duty the day of the disaster. And Aspinall says, I asked her, please tell me what they were doing then. And Thatcher said to me, their job, my dear, their job. What a bitch. Yeah, dude. Classy. <laughs> Aspinall so added, classy. Oh, it gets better. Aspinall added, after she said that, I asked, well, how come 95 people died if they were doing their job? And Thatcher said, I think I had better step away because you are so angry. Can you fucking imagine? <laughs> like, is, what a cunt, so dude. gaslighting. Jesus. What the fuck is that? <sighs> You're, oh, my God. Same energy you as know, like that, when uh, you get upset about poverty or something when you're talking with somebody and they're like, you're just getting really emotional right now. And I don't know if we can have this conversation. Uh, makes me yeah. want to murder. Well, and it brings up that adage that I'm sure everyone here has already heard is, you know, the problem with pissing on Margaret Thatcher's grave is eventually <laughs> run out of piss. Yep. They're the only two people whose graves I see memed as a gender neutral bathroom. Everybody just wants to piss on Reagan and Thatcher's grave. And for good reason. Like, they absolutely deserve that shit. Yeah, I love the uh, Reddit campaigns every once in a while where it's like, uh, upvote this so it shows up as the number one Google image result for gender neutral bathrooms. And it's Martin <laughs> nice. Thatcher's grave. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, so going on about the Hillsborough thing, not only did this disaster happen because of police negligence or incompetence, but it was incredibly hard for the families of the victims to get information about it. It took years of inquest at the taxpayer's expense. And Thatcher worked with Rupert Murdoch, that fucking ghoul, who blamed the Hillsborough disaster victims for their deaths and criminalized people from Liverpool through the media. Quoting an article in the BBC, an independent report accused the South Yorkshire police of deflecting blame for the disaster to innocent fans. But Labour's Mr. Straw said then the conservative government was complicit because they needed, quote, partisan support from the police. Mr. Straw said that it was a, quote, matter of great regret to him that Labour had not ensured that the disaster had been investigated thoroughly enough earlier in its time in office between 1997 and 2010. But he also told BBC Radio 4's Today program, quote, the Thatcher government, because they needed the police to be a partisan force, particularly for the minor strike and other industrial troubles, created a culture of impunity in the police service. They really were immune from outside influences, and they thought they could rule the roost, and that is what we absolutely saw in South Yorkshire. All I heard was all cops are bastards, I'm sorry. Yep, that's all you needed to yeah. hear. But no, I mean, basically, just to sum that up, she knew that she was going to need the police on her side all the time, and she was going to let them act with impunity because that was going to help her in the minor strike, in the troubles, and all the other things that she knew she was going to be doing and she was going to need. And just like you were saying, Jaron, knowing that like Occupy had valid points that people were pissed off for a good reason, 
you need those police on your side. Like they are the people that protect the elites from the starving masses. Yeah. And I mean, in in any conventional sense too, it's worth noting just in that same line of thought that when we think about the police, we're thinking about for the most part, who's going to protect our property. It's not really about public welfare. And this is something that goes beyond Reagan and Thatcher, but it's something that is very present in a lot of communities is that the police act as an arbiter of protecting status. They act as an arbiter of protecting property rights and so on and so on. And that's something that I deal with a lot personally as an anarchist is, you know, in terms of abolition, what I'm geared towards is how can we get rid of the vices that create negative or antisocial human behavior Mm -hmm. to the point that we don't need police. And Reagan and Thatcher are the literal diametric opposite of what I think should happen. We should be focusing on preventing crime on the front end. I think that antisocial behavior very rarely exists in people without some sort of systemic cause. Whereas Reagan and Thatcher are very, very game to start blaming other people, supporting the police, no matter how much extrajudicial process they use. And we can even see it now in the BLM protests is we have people getting shot in the street or choked, or however the method of execution, be it whether they stole a cigarillo or did literally fucking nothing. Yeah. And we are expected to be civil. We are expected to just chant slogans and shit. But as soon as somebody burns down a target, Mm -hmm. as soon as that target catches fire, then the entire country erupts and people are pissed off and the cops are allowed to go at it even harder. We're not really concerned with human rights. And I didn't even know this story that you just told, Mike, but it just harkens to everything that we've seen in this country this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's really what it comes down to is like you implement all these policies that are making it difficult for the majority of people in the country. And then when people are impoverished, when people are exploited, when people are just living in squalor and crime rises as a result, then your only solution is to create more of a police state in response rather than just solving the problem to begin with, which is at the root of it by having all this poverty and just giving people what they desperately need as workers. Absolutely. Yeah, because conservatives, like when they start talking about like, oh, we need the police to protect us from like criminals and stuff like that. They act like every single criminal is like Jeffrey Dahmer or fucking Ted Bundy, like these fucking crazy, insane dudes with no ration, just fucking murdering, raping, pillaging, whatever, without any analysis of socioeconomic problems or issues that cause a lot of these crimes, you know? And I agree with you. It's, It's this very small faction of people that are like actually truly evil serial killers and like shit like that. Like the vast majority of crime could be wiped out just taking care of people's basic needs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that 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 directly ties into the pivotal point that we've been talking about for the past three episodes, the visceral knowing choice to start subsidizing the upper class instead of giving the spoils of labor and technology to the people. The fact is we don't have to work as much. The fact is we don't need probably a third of the jobs that are out there. You know, the entire construct of capitalism is becoming more and more vestigial. And that is not something that the system itself can square with. So as a result, you know, we do have to start perceiving each other as animalistic, even when that's not true. And not even to mention that people have more stolen from them by their employers and by the police than from all the criminals combined. 
Like even though people are driven to crime just by being desperate because they're in such dire straits financially that they will actually resort to stealing from people, that is still a fraction of what people have stolen from them through their employers, through wage theft, or from the police through civil asset forfeiture. And that's been going on for a couple of years now, like since Obama was in office and civil asset forfeiture really took off, people are just getting the money stolen from them. Like if you were traveling with any significant amount of cash for any reason, like if you wanted to go buy a car in cash or whatever, and you are unlucky enough to get pulled over by the police, like look into civil asset forfeiture. They will just confiscate that money on the assumption that you are committing a crime with it because you're not supposed to be traveling with cash and they just keep it. And the cash is both the evidence and also the perpetrator of the crime in a weird way. Like it's really weird the way they have it set up. You have to then prove your innocence to even get that cash back. And it takes a long time. And in the meantime, there are examples of this. They bought pinball machines with it. They've already bought like little fun things that they do with that money. And you're just fucked. It's so sick. Yeah, I just saw a police department that stole um, a fucking Hellcat from a dude because they caught him with drugs and they're like, oh, the drug money paid for this Hellcat. So we're going to take it and now we're going to use it as an undercover vehicle. What is a Hellcat? It's like the top line model for Charger or something. Oh, it's one of those souped up charges. Okay, yeah, I've seen those. Last year and this year, asset forfeiture resulted in more monetary theft from citizens than criminal theft. Oh, yeah, yeah. By a long 12, the biggest game in the world, man. (laughs) Yeah. And they got the fucking strongest union in the U.S. Like, yeah, well, that's the thing is conversely, while all these other unions are getting shit on police unions are getting stronger. Yeah. It's not an accident. Yeah. They shouldn't have fucking like the the one union I don't want is the one that's getting stronger. Cosby, did you have something I saw a couple times you tried to jump in and I kept talking? Uh, I think some it was last year, just the New York City police alone, I think, had to pay three hundred and fifteen million dollars in reparations due to like civil asset claims and stuff. Mm-hmm. Based well, damage that they had done on their own had to have been paid by taxpayer money. Yeah. If that makes sense. And it's funny because all the Republicans who are worried about taxpayer debt never bring that up. They, that never even factors into their equation about where the taxpayer money is being wasted and the inefficiencies of government. Yeah. Is that on top of the $250 million that the NYPD had to pay out for like wrongful arrests and like assaults? That I'm not exactly sure of. Yeah, I think so. that's part of it. Either way, cops are bastards. You know, just while we're while we're shitting on cops and talking about Reagan here, just for the record, in terms of police state augmentation, it should be at least noted that Barack Obama's expansion of the 1033 program is pretty much why cops are armed in a way that you would expect in a war zone right now. Yeah, which every yeah. study has shown yep. does not help crime rates at all. No, no, not at all. Even in, uh, cause you know, my wife and I lived in Atlanta for a little while and just over in Doraville, Georgia, they have shit that is you know, legitimately has come back from Afghanistan and from Iraq and sold to the local police in Doraville, Georgia, where it's like, I think the average age is like 60. What do you think they're going to do? Like riot for Metamucil or something? Like, <laughs> it's just not a thing. Yeah, they give these motherfuckers LRADs where any setting above 60 causes instant deafness. And there's these cops don't get fucking training on shit like that. What's an LRAD? Oh, it's like a um, long range audio device. It's basically, it's like this like electronic panel thing. It's got a bunch of buttons on it, but it's sound that is focused like a laser. Huh. Yeah. Uh, Jared's spot on about this. During the protests, we see these repurposed like military vehicles coming in as a show of force or display of like fear really is what it's trying to instill within the protesters to get them to scramble away and say, oh, this cause is not worth fighting for or like you're invalid within your implications of the right to protest. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's no reason for regular cops to have Bearcats and MRAPs. You know, they don't need these fucking heavy ass armored vehicles. That plays right into the thing of, I think, why we see a perpetuated need to riot or to protest in itself is because protesting is this demand of having something done. And when your reaction of that is to quiet it, to condemn it and criminalize that begging and the will there for it, you're only perpetuating the problem further down the line and ensuing more aggravation and agitation within the crowds that hold this desire to be completely valid. Yeah, I mean, we're going to see more of this vicious cycle as time goes on. Like, I mean, our only chance in this past election cycle was somebody like Bernie, you know, an actual progressive. Not that he would have solved all the problems, but just the idea of having all these protests about police brutality and then they respond with more police brutality. And then you nominate the top cop Kamala and Biden, who nothing will fundamentally change and who keeps saying that defund the police, like even just the last couple of days, he's still blaming defund the police for all the seats that the Dems didn't win in this past election. And we all know that it's bullshit. We know that progressives won hand over fist in all the states that they were running in. And it's places where they were running middling corporate Democrats who oppose things like Medicare for all where they lost. But that doesn't matter because the Democrats are still going to run with the narrative that progressives lost them the seats that they should have rightfully won. The irony of American politics. And, you know, look, I didn't want to see Trump get another term. I'll be honest. Not that I'm a Biden fan at all. But the funny thing is the only reason that motherfucker lost is because there were enough libertarian votes that they siphoned Mm -hmm. off just that (laughs) tiny sliver that managed to not put him in there again. Because let's be real, if libertarians weren't a thing, they'd be Republicans. So, you know, it's just funny. It's as a contrarian, it's very funny to me to just see this like tiny percentage of other idiots that happen to take away from the larger percentage of mostly idiots and then just end (laughs) up giving us Joe fucking Biden. So there is just a kind of unusual humor to it, especially given that none of them are in the camp of can we solve these social problems on the front end? Tying it all back to what we've been talking about, though, you know, Reagan and Thatcher really did kind of mold this very visceral mentality of, you know, that the government needs to be strong judicially and weak from a welfare perspective. And those things do really work together because as soon as shit goes down because there's no fucking infrastructure, we have to have this judicial powerhouse to come in and squash people back down and make them just somehow work until they literally can't anymore. Mm -hmm. Going back to what you were saying, Jaron, like it is endlessly funny to me that Joe Jorgensen is what the Democrats accused Jill Stein of being last time. Like she actually did cost (laughs) Trump the the election. Yeah. Yeah, I like the meme of the uh, like the original meme where the cat's in there with the paper and he's like, oh, I should buy a boat. But it's about all the like the Jill uh, Stein voters where it's like Amy Coney Barrett getting confirmed is like, I shouldn't have voted Jill Stein. (laughs) Well, actually, that does bring up something interesting with Thatcher that I think is worth noting. You know, obviously, we have this unilateral appointment of Amy Coney Barrett. There's something that a lot of people may not know about British politics unless you are, in fact, British. And sorry if I butcher this, but in Parliament, there are two houses. There's the lower Parliament and then there's the House of Lords, which is kind of like our Senate, but not really. It actually makes our Senate look somewhat progressive because they're divided into two camps, okay? The House of Lords has the Lords Spiritual, who are a bunch of archbishops. That's it. Gross. And then the Lords Temporal, who are descendants of royal families from feudal times in the UK and prominent families now. Even grosser. Now, in order to get 
appointed to this. You do not elect these people. Keep in mind, it's the Senate. They can veto anything. They can change anything. And there is literally no constituent accountability to these people. In order to get appointed, you're put in there by the queen at the behest of the prime minister. So for a religious fundamentalist like Margaret Thatcher, she's going to pick the most crazy Christian backwards fundamentalist that she possibly can and get them in there. And after that, from my understanding, it's more or less a life appointment unless there's some sort of hereditary deal with it. Wow. On that, to be totally honest, I'm not clear. But the point being is that if the prime minister is a religious fundamentalist, they are going to bow in front of the crown, the Church of England, and put as many people into these Senate positions as possible, the House of Lords being the Senate. Mm-hmm. Now, in the past couple of years, there's been pushes to make these democratically elected, these seats, but to no avail so far. So, you know, that's definitely something that works within the framework of what we've been talking about is the entire legislature of parliament is controlled more or less by the prime minister and the crown and, of course, the Church of England. That's a very important thing to think about when we're considering Thatcher attacking unions, gay people, and anybody else that she happened to have on her docket. That actually does kind of bring me to another point. I have a little short piece about Thatcher and her take on feminism. So Thatcher was hated by feminists despite being the first female prime minister and despite being viewed as a powerful woman in a patriarchal world. And she acknowledged as much once asking, quote, the feminists hate me, don't they? Only to provide her own response. And she said, and I don't blame them for I hate feminism. It is poison. Jesus, fuck. Dude, she sounds like a straight up incel, dude. Like, <laughs> So, I mean, this also came with material. Oh, you know, my God. She, she wasn't just all talk. Like, in her 11-year reign as prime minister, she appointed only one woman to cabinet. And while announcing that the battle for women's rights had been, quote, largely won, she refused to invest in affordable childcare or to increase child benefit. As working mothers were demonized for raising a, quote, Christ generation. So she's demonizing mothers who work and actually have to put their children into daycare, acting like they should just instead be homemakers and stay-at-home moms. For Thatcher, single mothers were like her cause to live. They were her welfare queens, like for Reagan. Yes. Do you think Thatcher had a nanny? That would be an interesting topic to get into. Like if we looked, looked at her childhood and saw why. Because people say that shit now about Trump. Like Mary Trump is all over the news talking about why Trump is so weird and just like, such a sadist and everything. It's because he had like such a terrible childhood and these awful parents. I'm sure Thatcher's got a similar story. Yeah. They, I mean, somebody probably just left her at the bottom of a well for a couple of months or something <laughs> like that. Like, she sounds like Ben Shapiro. It's fucking yeah, freaking dude. me out. Like, dude, seriously. Yeah. I was about to say, it just sounds like some like neck beard fucking incel motherfucker just like traveled back in time. Yeah, was dude. like, yeah, Margaret Thatcher, this seems like a good body to inhabit. Let's just fucking roll with that. And they would oh be right God. because I hate feminism as well. <laughs> it, is, it is a poison, theoretically. Let's say hypothetically. <laughs> My doctor wife. <laughs> so uh, to continue with Thatcher on feminism. As working mothers were demonized for raising a, quote, Christ generation, Thatcher gave an impression of ditching cabinet meetings to rush home and get the dinner on the table for her millionaire husband. Conservative politician Edwina Curry once remarked that she would, quote, see male MPs who came into any politics after I had and who were no better than me being promoted over my head. Is that glass ceiling in action. So Thatcher claimed the battle for women's rights had been largely won and then spearheaded policies which disproportionately affected millions of working mothers across Britain. So, I mean, that's just like to a T that describes to me the perfect embodiment of, like I was saying earlier about neoliberalism, where you give this symbolic support, like you have this woman in office and you say, look, 
Look how far women are advancing. It's exactly like when Obama was in office and all the people on the right were claiming that racism is over because we have a black president all of a sudden, as if there aren't still systemic issues, as if racism isn't still rampant, as if they didn't prove how rampant racism was by electing Donald Trump and then being extremely racist for the next, all, all of Obama's eight years in office, but then also, you know, Trump's entire term where they felt more emboldened to be outwardly racist and just vocal about it. But yeah, just the idea of having this woman in office who then does all these things that are terrible for women and does nothing to empower them in any material or meaningful way. But you're just supposed to feel like women are making progress because there is a woman at the head of it all. She pulled the ladder up behind herself and never helped another woman ever. So but didn't she show that a woman could become prime minister? Nobody had done that before. Do you want a woman like that as a warmonger and rips a, a country? Is that what you want for a prime minister of any sex? Uh, it just goes back to the old shtick of more women oppressors and more women drone yeah. pilots. And That's why I love memes, man. They're so effective. Like just that simple meme can convey exactly that message of just having symbolic with nothing material behind it. Yeah, it gets the point across. Yeah, memes definitely do. I think that they're kind of a secret weapon, honestly. But, you know, I think that is kind of that's an interesting point to touch on because like, let's say hypothetically, the just the drone strike record alone. <laughs> Let's say hypothetically the drone strike record <laughs> from Barack Obama. Um, so, like if that if that had been George W. Bush who had done that with like a two percent accuracy rating, you know, in like probably seven different countries that we know of and more that we don't know of. If that had been a white Republican doing that, liberals would have lost their fucking minds for yep. for eight years. over that. But because it was Obama, because it was ostensibly, I guess, a black guy that came into a liberal establishment and promised change, he does this. And, you know, you could give a liberal every detail in the world about this, and they will still find some reason to justify it because it serves to reinforce that mentality of theirs. A perfect example of that is with the Patriot Act and like started uh, widespread surveillance on U.S. citizens. It expanded under Obama. Liberals didn't give a fuck. True. Remember that, you know, during Obama's term, they had their own version of what Trump supporters called his 4D chess, where every time they weren't getting what they wanted out of Trump, when he wasn't building the wall, when he wasn't locking Hillary up, whenever he would make any kind of concession, whenever he did, his fans would all say he was playing 4D chess and he was playing everybody for a fool. Liberals had that exact same thing when Obama would just concede all the time to Republicans and reach across the aisle to fuck over the working class. They always said that he had some master plan that he was executing. They said that he had these bigger designs that we just weren't privy to and that it was all going to come to fruition at some point and then two entire terms go by and we have nothing to show for it we get the terrible aca which is like it's just a failure on every level like it actually has made people hate the idea of universal health care even though it is not universal health care it does nothing to actually really meaningfully improve people's lives so damaging and that's really what he did in his entire two terms and if they couldn't default to the 40 chess like argument they would be like they go low we go high you know like trying to assume this moral (laughs) high ground as if how people are doing now with the soul of america you know it's like oh the process is what's important it's like no you're truly fucking over people and trying to fucking justify it just because what a minority is in office because that seems progressive when it's truly not when you look at the policies Also, Mike just stirred a memory of mine that I meant to bring up earlier, which is um, so obviously Britain's healthcare system. Thatcher was trying to privatize the entire NHS. 
And what ended up happening is sort of a hybridized system, right? So looking at ACA, Obamacare, this is a crazy piece of history. So a Republican think tank called the Heritage Foundation in the 90s was looking at what Thatcher's vision was and kind of adding on to it a little bit, i.e. they wanted to have privatized healthcare, but within very specific channels. And among the people in the Heritage Foundation were a lot of prominent uh, insurance company executives and lobbyists. Mm -hmm. They actually came up with the formative documentation and plan for ACA, which was later sold to the American people under Barack Obama as something that was liberal and universal even yeah. though neither one of those things were necessarily true. Yeah, so, I mean, it was based on know, Mitt Romney's plan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they sold a Republican health care plan to the entire fucking country and told you that it was good. Yep. And then every Republican just comes out and speaks against it like it's the fucking worst thing ever. It's like, it was your guys' oh, fucking yeah. idea. <laughs> they dragged their feet. They opposed the tooth and nail. But I mean, I think we're doing more than enough to drive the point home that that is what liberals do. They compromise before they even get to the table and they give you nothing but feel good politics with no material backing behind it. I stand by what I yeah. said last podcast that liberals are the doormats to fascism. Oh, absolutely, dude. Okay, so I think we can wrap Accurate. it up there. We'll wrap it up for the night. On the docket for the next time, for part two of our Thatcher episode, we're going to talk about the troubles, uh, which is going to be a nice big topic to get into. Uh, we'll talk about the recession that Thatcher caused. We will talk about the poll tax involved with that. And we will talk about Margaret Thatcher's dickhead son, Mark, and as well as her uh, ties to, and support for Pinochet. And then Cosper will go into a deeper dive into neoliberalism and how that relates to Thatcher and Reagan to wrap it all up in a nice little package for us. So if we can do the plugs, Cosper, we will plug the uh, DSA, that's DSAUSA.org. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say I have a new thing to plug this week, which is my Twitch. You can find me at at Cosper underscore on Twitch now. I'm going to be streaming doing like, I'll be reading theory, other books. I'll be playing video games, covering current topics, and also just having a good time. So if y'all want to check me out, I'll be there. Hell yeah. So that's what, twitch.tv slash Cosper, C-O-S-P-E-R underscore? That's right. Yeah, just so everybody knows, it's not Casper, it is Cosper. <laughs> uh, for Jaron, we'll plug your uh, website and your book. That's jaronperlman.com, J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. You can pick up his book, The Politics of Fear. And uh, Ward Lawley, of course, dude. And uh, for Ward, we'll plug your, both of your Instagram accounts. It's Ward Lawley, W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y. And Millennial Leftist, you can spell that out. I think people know how to spell millennial at this point. Yeah, basically. It's common spelling, you know. Fuck shadow bands. I think most people say, are got a shadow mostly. band going on? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, they last two weeks. Yeah. You have to like literally not post from your account for two weeks. And I really think the way it works is once you post again, it just extends it for another two Dude, weeks. Like, not for me. Uh, like the violation that's still pending on my account is from early October. Jesus. Yeah. You, you really pissed them off. Good for you. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. And the right likes to claim they're silenced. Yeah. I mean, I will say like that's the reason that I've gotten shadow bans. The only time that I've been shadow banned on Instagram is because I posted a freaking meme about Joe Biden. And it's because they have their bots recognizing just the image of Joe Biden that obviously was making those rounds in right wing circles and getting involved with like QAnon bullshit. And then they just instantly flag you and say that it's like spreading false information, even though Joe Biden absolutely did increase mass incarceration with the 1994 crime bill. Like that is a fact. Like your fact check was not yeah. a fact check, you fucking assholes. All right. Going off on a rant here. <laughs> I am once again asking <laughs> for humans to fact check Instagram posts. Yeah, dude. I am no longer asking. <laughs> <laughs> I like that version. <laughs>
All right, so and of course I'm turn leftist on Instagram. Also turn leftist one three one two right now because obviously of course I'm shadow banned as usual. So you know follow us on Instagram, check out our shit posts, recommend the podcast to your friends, give us some good reviews on iTunes and everything. We always appreciate that. What's up, Ward? Yeah, I just also want to plug our uh, Twitter at Turn Leftist Pod. You know, Sterling's not here to plug these uh, normal things. And uh, oh, I was also- just going to leave Sterling's plug out. He can't oh. make it. No, no, I'm just yeah, kidding. No. Yeah, check us out on Twitter at Turn Leftist Pod, and uh, also check us out on Discord. You know, the links in the uh, Turn Leftist uh, bio on Instagram. Yeah, you can just go to actually like uh, Linktree slash Turn Leftist, and that has all our links for our Discord server and everything like that. So you can find all our relevant links. And before I forget, I also want to just plug Socialist RA as usual. That's socialistra.org and the PSL. That's PSL Web. So definitely join those if there is a branch near you. Organize and agitate and educate. That's all we can do. But unless anybody has anything else, uh, we can wrap it up there and we'll pick up on part two of Margaret Thatcher and then wrap up our series on Reagan and Thatcher. Oh, yeah. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you very much. I'll see you all Preach. next week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. See Ciao you guys soon. Bye. Thank you. you. Y'all take care. Bye.